Well, if this is your uh, first time here at New Hope, I almost feel the need to say I'm sorry because of what we're studying this morning. Um, we're stepping into Revelation chapter 6, and you've stepped into something extraordinarily difficult. Um, for those of us that have been studying along in the, in the last 12 weeks, um, this is the moment we've been working towards is seeing these future things. Um, we've studied so far John seeing God on the throne and the letters to the seven churches, but where we're at in Revelation now has everything to do with things in the future. And so it's a complicated material. So don't take this particular morning as a, um, a sermon as much as it is an instruction, okay? This is a teaching, and it is a lot of information here, a lot to process. And we're going to take it a piece at a time, and, and hopefully you'll find the application coming out of it. So before we step into that, I'm going to invite you to pray with me, and that uh, God will really give us some eyes to see this morning. Father, thank you for the um, privilege of being able to lift up songs to you for talented musicians who can lead us. We thank you for your written word that we have the privilege of studying. We truly ask, Father, for the ability to understand and, and comprehend through the power of your Holy Spirit the things that are written down here. Um, without the working of your Spirit, these would be extraordinarily difficult things to discern. And so we ask that you would give us those spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear, to comprehend these things that are written about uh, the end times and future things. We invite your presence, and we're so thankful, Father, for this time set aside in the midst of our week. We ask that you would bless it. You promised that in Revelation chapter 1, that those who read and heed the things that are written are blessed. And so... We're reading and we're working on the heeding things, Father, so we ask that you would bless us as a result of this. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Often before a really violent storm comes, you would probably note that there's a time of quietness. I live out in the country and I can see storms approaching from a long ways off. When I lived in Arizona, you could see it for many miles away the approaching storm, and there's definitely a sense, a foreboding sense in the air when a storm arrives. I note that same thing here on planet Earth these days, and believe me, this is not meant to be pessimism. This is a, a reality check. There is a foreboding sense that there's a storm brewing, and most everyone is aware of it and can feel it. Anyone who's lived any number of years know that things are certainly different today than perhaps 20 years, 30 years, 40 years ago. And what is progressing, what is unfolding here makes us feel at times as though we're on a raft riding down the river of time and there's a waterfall ahead and it's thundering and we can hear it. But for right now, we're not there. But we're aware that it's there. And it grows, becomes louder as we move down this stream of time. Those who are really curious about end times typically ask a question that the disciples of Jesus asked. There was a moment in time when Jesus was talking about the end times, the last days. And he spoke to a large crowd and told them what he saw. And then afterwards, his disciples came to him privately 
and asked him what those things meant. Look at this verse up on the screen from Matthew 24.3. This is Jesus talking to his disciples privately. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Now to find his answer to their question, you need to go to Matthew 24 later today and read it yourself. Why did he say to them though, see to it that no one misleads you? Because there is a great deal of false teaching that goes on in our world. Many would say, forget it, that stuff that's written 2,000 years ago can't possibly happen. Others have unique interpretations of this particular passage. What we're going to look at today is going to require us to be real students of the Scriptures, to really take it verse by verse. And so that's why we're only going to do eight verses this morning, to really understand what's going on in these last days and what was being said about the things that would be unfolded to us. So here's a question that I have for you that I want you to log in the back of your mind as we work through this text this morning. If every single prophecy written in the Old Testament about Jesus' first coming came to be true to the letter of the detail. Why would we think it to be any different about his second coming? Everything that was written in the Old Testament, the prophecies, all bared out exactly as they said when Jesus arrived the first time. Why would they be any different the second time? Take that one and just kind of put it on the shelf. We're going to move ahead now and look at the first framework for this, which is the Great Tribulation. We use the phrase, the Great Tribulation, immediately if you've grown up in church, certain things pop in your mind. End times chaos. The Great Tribulation is referred to throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's four names for it from the Old Testament. The first one's called the Time of Jacob's Trouble. It comes from Jeremiah 30. Another one is called the 70th Week of Daniel. I'll talk to you about that in just a few minutes. Another one's called the Day of Vengeance. And in Deuteronomy 4.30, it's actually called the Tribulation. Look at this verse up on the screen. Deuteronomy 4.30, When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, meaning the last days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. The word there, distress, is the word for tribulation in Hebrew. It's called sar. And here's the definition for it, literally. An adversary, afflicted, anguish, close distress, enemy, sorrow. Now, when you link the Old Testament definition for that, sar, with the New Testament definition you're going to see in a minute, you'll understand. But what this is talking about, those are the words of the definition. Here's the word picture. A very tight quarter in which you are not able to turn to the right or the left, you're pressed in. You have limited options. So that's what that's referring to when it says tribulation. So God was saying to the children of Israel, you're wandering away from me. There's a day coming during tribulation when you will come back to me. During your distress, you will turn back. Now I want you to see the New Testament names for this. First one comes from 1 Thessalonians 5.2. It's called the day of the Lord. Another one from Revelation 15.1, the wrath of God. Revelation 3.10, it's called the hour of trial. And the last one comes from Jesus, from Matthew 24. 
He actually called it the Great Tribulation. Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So the word great, megas, huge, associated with fear. Look at the definition for it. Megas, exceedingly great fear, associated with the other word for tribulation is thlipsis. Look at the definition for that. Affliction, anguish, burden, persecution, tribulation. Okay, so track with me on this. In the Old Testament, it's sar, tight quarters, pressed in. In the New Testament, the same word, tribulation, is crushing. That's the anguish and the affliction associated with the word. And Jesus, looking forward in time, said, this is what it's going to be like in this time of great pressing and anguish upon the earth. So the people paid really close attention. That's why they said, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? How can we understand this? Our God is a God of great purpose and order. Would you not agree? Everything he does, he does for a system, for a reason, to accomplish the purpose. So if he's got a crushing time coming upon the earth, there must be a reason for it. There must be a reason for this affliction that will be coming upon the earth. I've identified three reasons. You probably could identify a few others yourself, but the three that I've identified, first of all, is one, to make an end of wicked behavior and evil ones. I'll show you that one in just a minute. Number two, to bring about a worldwide revival. Did you know that? Did you know that in the last days, there will be a massive turning to God upon the face of the earth? There will be people, especially the Jewish people, who will turn back to God. That's the third one that I've identified, to break the will of the holy people, meaning the Jews. That's the purposes of the tribulation period of time, to destroy evil, to destroy evil beings on the earth. Look at this verse from Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, the day of the Lord, that's the tribulation, is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. That's a graphic word, isn't it? As a matter of fact, if I could label this message with a movie rating, I wouldn't call it PG. I don't think I'd call it R, but I'd probably call it PG-13, because it gets really graphic as we move on through this stuff. There's details here that are just plain gory. So we find here in Isaiah 13, God will exterminate sinners from the earth. The next one comes from Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24, 19, the earth is broken asunder, the earth is split through, the earth is shaking violently, speaks of those last day's earthquakes. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and it totters like a shack for its transgression is heavy upon it. What do you think of when you think of transgression? Sin, that's what the word is. The sin is heavy upon the earth. So what does God do with it? And it will fall never to rise again. So God's very specific about his purpose, about putting away evil and evil beings, humans who practice evil in the last days. That's one of the purposes of the tribulation period of time. I'm gonna ask you to, Try and follow me on this, especially because it's a difficult word picture to get in your mind. 
If you're familiar at all with the book of Daniel, you might remember that last week I asked you to read Daniel chapter 9. If you haven't read that yet, you need to do that this week. It'll help you really understand these last days things. Daniel chapter 9 is an experience in which Daniel confronts an angel. He's standing on a river. He's in Babylon. He's there with all the other captives, and he encounters a heavenly being, an angel. And this angel shares the same information with Daniel that we read about here in Revelation chapter 6. And in the midst of that revealing, what he shows Daniel is a period of time that's known as the 77s. Now, if you can get this clear in your mind, I'm going to help you with this. A seven-year period of time is what's represented there. So it says, when you read Daniel chapter 9, later today or this week if you get to it, it says a week of years or 70 weeks. It represents a year. Each day that you see represented is a year. A day equals a year. So when you see 77s or 70 weeks in Daniel, you'll understand that what they're talking about is 490 years so the angel said to Daniel, there will be 490 years in which these things will take place. Now we know that from the beginning of Daniel's time, the walls in Jerusalem were rebuilt. That was what the angel said to watch for. Watch for when the walls in Jerusalem are rebuilt. And from that point forward in time, 69 weeks, meaning 483 years, the arrival of Messiah will take place. Do you know that in the 483rd year, Jesus arrived? From the time of Daniel to Jesus' arrival on the earth was exactly 483 years, just as was told to Daniel 483 years earlier. So that leaves us with one week of years, seven years yet remaining to be fulfilled. Those are the years that we're learning about here a literal seven-year period of time known as the 70th week of Daniel, forward in time. I see your eyes glazing over about that detail, okay? I just wanted to help you get that framework straight in your mind so when you read Daniel chapter 9, that'll make a little more sense to you. So let's move forward here now because from this point on, we've stepped forward. So here's the question everybody wants to ask. Well, how far forward in time? When does this stuff take place? You know, if it was a football, God could very well kick the football and send it down the road 500 years if he wants to. But it could be tomorrow. There's nothing saying that it can't happen. God has his plan, he has his purpose in his system. So whether it happens within our lifetime or it happens 500 years from now, I'm not gonna begin to speculate. But Jesus said, here's one of the things you wanna watch for. As the end time approaches, there will be more and more chaos on the earth. Here's how he said it from Matthew 24, 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not the end, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So just as a mother's birth pangs intensify, get more intense. Jesus is saying, as time moves on, there's going to be more intensity to the earthquakes, to the famines, to the wars upon planet Earth. This first set of seals we're going to look at this morning, we're only going to do eight verses. These first four seals 
just cover this period of time called the beginning of birth pangs that Jesus is referring to. Now as each seal is opened, new terrors are unleashed upon the earth. So the first seal that we're gonna see is the first one on the scroll of seven you learned about last week. So with this opening of the scroll, God begins his final call. It's like a shot across the bow. Hey, pay attention. You see all these things happening? The end times are here. So this is where we're gonna start out in Revelation chapter six and verse one. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. Revelation chapter six, verse one, then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. This is the moment that all of history has been waiting for. Jesus, the lamb, now has the scroll, the Biblion, in his hand, the scroll that you learned about last week, and he pops the first seal. And with that first seal, something unfolds. Immediately, John hears one of the four creatures call out, come. Now, you would think that that creature is calling to John. That's an angel calling John. That's not what's going on. The angel is calling forth one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's what you'll see right here. God's got his end time posse together and he's calling them out. So you see the first one arriving. Verse two, I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow. A crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. This is very significant right here because this individual bears resemblance to Jesus. You see the similarities here? He's on a white horse, they both have crowns, and this individual is focused on conquest. And in scripture, white horses always symbolize victory and conquest. So this individual looks like Jesus. Some identify this as Jesus. I'm gonna show you why it's not. This specifically, this individual is wearing a Stephanos crown. That's what the word is that's used there. Jesus wears a diadem crown, meaning royal crown, a crown that's handed to him from God the Father. A Stephanos crown is for achievement of power or victory. This individual cannot be Jesus because Jesus is the one opening the scroll, while this guy's a rider on the horse. And one last detail. This one carries a bow. Jesus, Scripture says, carries a sword. Do you notice something specific about this bow? It says, who sat on it had a bow. He carries a bow, but there's no mention of arrows. None at all. Now how do you become a conqueror who carries out conquest, but you have no arrows for your bow? This is like Barney Fife and Mayberry RFD. You got, Barney's got his gun, but he's got no bullets. If you've seen that show, he carries it in his pocket. And he says, Andy, can I put a bullet in my gun now? Okay, you got an individual here who's got a bow but no arrows. And he wears a crown that was given to him. Now a crown is a sign of authority. The rider is a crowned ruler, meaning he's been given authority. So what's going on here? He who sat on a white horse specifically has a crown, has a bow, and a conqueror going out to conquer. You're seeing here the arrival of the Antichrist. That's the first horse in Revelation. This one on a white horse who looks like Jesus, but is not Jesus. This is the arrival of the Antichrist. He goes by various names in Scripture. In 2 Thessalonians, you find him called the man of sin. He's also called the lawless one. 
but he overpowers without physical destruction. How in the world is that done? How does one come on the world scene? Now let's think globally. Let's think Tokyo, Berlin, New York City, Moscow. How does one arrive on the scene who overcomes the entire planet but doesn't carry out a military battle? How in the world is that possible? Initially, you'll find that Satan arrives through the form of Antichrist as one who is full of deceit and lies. Let me show you this first passage up on the screen. This comes from 2 Thessalonians 2.9. This is a description from God given to us so we'll know what the Antichrist is like. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Does that make it crystal clear? He's full of deceit. Everything he does is a counterfeit. In other words, he'll be good with words, okay? He'll be skillful as an orator, a very good politician. So this conquest is set in motion and God allows deceit to have its way. He allows it to work out. There's an increasing cry in our generation, especially our generation, for peace, international peace upon the earth. You hear it constantly. This world's desire for international peace really sets the bait well. It's a, it's a supreme satanic trap so that everyone who's looking for a leader will be satisfied with this individual when he arrives on the scene. Now, what I'm about to say, please don't take politically because I don't intend it politically, okay? Some of you already know where I'm going with this, but I, I want you to know that watching our elections within the last couple years caused me to realize just how desperate our world is for someone who brings the concept of hope. People were looking for change. And so the concept is this. When, when President Obama decided to take his, by the way, I'm not going to attach President Obama to Antichrist, so you can all take a big breath right now, okay? Understand that when he selected this phrase, change you can believe in, is because people understood, I associate with that. I want hope, I want a new beginning. Now, it seems really incredible to believe that someone who offers such a simple solution can capture the world's attention, doesn't it? You know that I heard within the first two months after our presidential election, rulers from around the world saying, he could be president of the world. They were that hungry for someone to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Now, it seems incredible that the world hovering on the brink of destruction could be so easily deceived, doesn't it? Unless you're a student of history and you think back to 1938. What happened in 1938? This is before World War II. On the heels of the Great Depression, after we were recovering from World War I, an individual came on the scene whom the world surrounded at first saying, he absolutely can bring peace 
to Europe at least. So much so that Great Britain actually sent their prime minister to sit down in peace negotiations with Adolf Hitler. Even though Adolf Hitler had written a book called Mein Kampf, which laid out all the details of how he was going to take over Europe. Everybody had this in their hand. They could read his plan, but decided not to pay attention. Now, in this particular case, Neville Chamberlain actually sat down with Adolf Hitler, and Adolf Hitler signed a peace tract, a peace treaty with Britain. Neville Chamberlain took it back to the House of Commons. He stood in England, in London, waved the paper and said, finally, we have achieved peace in Europe. We have a guarantee from Adolf Hitler. Do you know that there was one voice in the House of Commons that day that stood up in protest? His name was Winston Churchill. And he said, absolutely not. This is deception at its very core. We will be taken astray. He was shouted down by the people that were in the House of Commons that day. Two years later, Germany invaded Poland and everybody realized this was part of a plan. This was part of a plan of deception. Now, when you look at it on a scale of Europe, you would say, if the world was in desperate need, it would not be all that difficult to elevate someone to a place of prominence who says, this is my plan, especially if they're a very attractive individual. And by that I mean skilled politically, promising peace, super intelligent. And as I read scripture and I look at the descriptions of Antichrist, I see that this is an extraordinarily intelligent individual. This is someone who may be alive on planet Earth today if God intends to carry this actions out in your lifetime. He is extraordinarily attractive, physically and intellectually, someone whom the world is drawn towards. Now, it's not difficult to imagine that particular setting, and in response, the world is going to honor him and present him with a prestigious supreme leadership position known as the ruler of the world. So here we come into the second seal being opened, and here is where the story becomes very ugly, downright horrible. Look with me up on the screen at verse three. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. So the second horseman appears and this euphoric mood of peace is shattered upon the earth. Everything that Antichrist had been working towards to bring peace is now destroyed because there's war, devastating wars, and it's a collapse of the peace system. This red horse, red in scripture, is always depicting war. When you see red associated with prophecy, it's talking about blood, fire, and war. And so in this case, the red horse is God's judgment, descending and destroying this peace. Note that it says it was granted to take peace from the earth. You know what that tells me specifically? All that happens is under God's control. He didn't have it to take himself. It was granted to him to take peace from the earth. Who gave it to him? God, in order to carry out his plan. So God's wrath is beginning to be poured out. And this is sometime very early in the first of the seven year, time of, of, of seven year of the tribulation. It's in the very beginning part. 
Look at the description from Jesus in Matthew 24, 7 on the screen. You'll see the timeline for this. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes but all these things, this is what you want to circle, are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. So it's at the beginning of the tribulation period of time that this takes place. Now this great sword that's given over to him, specifically it's called a machaira. And a machaira is a short little knife. It's about seven inch long blade and it was used for assassinations. It was used in, when you saw Brutus assassinating Caesar, he used a machaira. It was a stabbing sword, a very small one. Not like a big ramphaya, like the soldiers carried into battle. This is one that they would keep in their bootstrap or one that they would keep in their toga tucked in. So that if they were in hand-to-hand -hand battle, they could pull out the machaira and stab. And this particular passage says it was a great machaira. And that refers to the numbers of death that will take place as a result of these hand-to-hand -hand battles. Hand-to-hand -hand combat taking place. War breaks out all over the earth. So what does Antichrist do? He exchanges his empty bow for a sword. No longer an empty bow without arrows. Now there's a sword here and war breaks out all over the earth. And he'll have to in order to maintain control. How do we know that for sure? Look at what Daniel says again. Daniel chapter 8 up on the screen. A king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue, his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Now you hear individuals who are looking at end times prophecy and they see in this nuclear bombs, holocaust. And it's because of the phrase great sword the reason for that is, and I'm just speculating here with you for a moment, up until our generation, the capacity to destroy large numbers of the population of the planet was virtually impossible. Because of these last days with the proliferation of nuclear warheads and biological warfare, individuals who look pro prophetically at this would say, the great sword that's being spoken of there is the capacity to kill large numbers of people. You'll link that together in just a few moments with the next thing that's being said. But specifically, this red horseman, when he comes, immerses the earth in a bloodbath. Just an incredible amount of bloodshed. Verse 5, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come. I looked and behold, remember that word from last week? Wow, this is a shocking thing to him. Behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. You know, it's verses like that that make pastors not want to teach the book of Revelation, okay? <laughs> so he's shocked this black horse comes on the scene, and in Scripture, every time you see a black horse, it's always associated with famine. So what we have here is coming on the scene is famine, and that's a logical consequence of war, isn't it? If you've got mass war all over the earth, you're going to have a shortage of food. And so there's famine that comes out of this, and so the black horse arrives on the scene. Jesus, again, in Matthew 24, predicted the famine. Matthew 24, 7. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Now he says specifically that this rider has a set of scales in his hand. This is not a scale like they use at Weight Watchers, okay? This is, this is the kind of scales that they measure out food on, hung from a chain. Can you think of circumstances where your food has ever had to be measured out? Now, you can go to the store and determine how much you want to buy on scales, but that it's measured out for you speaks to the fact there's a shortage. There's a huge shortage. He's got a set of food scales, and this pictures to me people standing in food lines, much like happened back in World War II in Europe and after the Depression here in the United States. Long food lines because people were starving. So he's got a set of scales in his hand, and John says he heard something like a voice. It's very important to notice where that comes from. I heard something like a voice, and it was coming from where? He said it was coming from around the center of the four living creatures. What did you learn about where the four living creatures are at? They surround the throne. You know what that tells me? That voice is coming from the presence of God, and God is in control of the economy. So when you see stock markets rise and fall, when you see a shortage of food, it doesn't catch God by surprise. This is no mystery to him. And the four living creatures, they allow this sound to come out. And John said, I hear something like a sound. And what do they say? A quart of wheat for a denarius. I don't know how much you earn in a day, but a denarius is what a man earned in one working day. So it will require in the last days someone to work an entire day to buy a quart of wheat. Do you know a quart of wheat is not enough to sustain one person for one day's food, let alone a family? And then it follows it up by saying three quarts of barley for a denarius. What did they do with barley? That's horse feed. That's what they fed to the cows. So we've got something that's very low in nutrition and people are starving. These are starvation conditions. It suggests that the food is about 12 times higher than its normal cost. A quart of wheat for a denarius. It's extraordinarily expensive. And then this very obscure phrase, do not damage the oil and the wine. Well, specifically in biblical times, oil and wine were used for purification of water and preparation of cooking. So without wine, they couldn't purify bad water. So this passage is saying protect it because there'll be a shortage, and you'll see next week when we look at this, there's a huge shortage of water on planet Earth. So we've got this deceptive peace that's established, first of all, followed by worldwide wars, resulting in a devastating global famine, and it combines to escalate chaos on the Earth all over the planet. In turn, that becomes an excuse for the Antichrist to seize control of the economy of the Earth. Look at this passage coming from the book of Revelation, Jesus' instructions to John about what the Antichrist will do with the economy of the world. Revelation 13, 16. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark either the name of the beast or the number of his name. That's where the representation for the figure 666 comes from. 
We'll explain that later in future weeks, what that number represents, but the mark of the beast that's upon himself, 666, is referring to the future control of the economy of the world. So let's go to verse 7. This is the last one we're going to cover today. Verse 7, When the Lamb broke the seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and here he shocked again. Behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following him. Authority was given to him, to them, over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beast of the earth. This pale horse that's referred to, ashen, literally the word that we get for chlorine is the word chloros that's used here, a chloros horse. Have you ever looked at a bottle of chlorine? Maybe when you dump it into a swimming pool to balance out the pH level, it's a sick yellowish green color. It's really kind of putrid to look at. And that's John's shock. This chloros horse came forth. Why? Because it's the color of death, the color of a corpse that's decaying. It turns yellowish green in the decaying stages. And so John sees this chloros horse and death comes because of war, because of pestilence, because of famine, death sweeps in and what do they get? Power over one-fourth of the population of the earth. We have a population of a little bit over six billion people on this planet right now. So if this happened within, let's say, the next year, you're talking a billion and a half people to die as the result of plagues, war, pestilence, famine, assassinations, chaos upon the planet. So the four forms that these guys use to do this, to carry this out, we're told that they use the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beast of the earth. I have no idea what that is. I know what coyotes are. I know what bears are, just like you. I don't know what that's speaking of. But I can picture in end times with dead bodies laying all over the place, people are not going to be using their money to feed their pets. You can be guaranteed of that. If it's survival situations, people are looking just to feed their children, animals are gonna get pretty hungry. And I think that's what's that referring to, but I have no idea in mind. Four seals, awful, frightening, absolutely. A system of checking ourselves, Nothing this devastating has ever happened on planet Earth. It's never been seen. Here's a clue for you. Far worse than this is yet to come. Just like you see in the book of Exodus with God redeeming the people of Israel out of Egypt. That's why we studied that. Each time God brought about a judgment, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. This is not nearly as big as what we're about to look at in future weeks. It makes me think of the verse that the writer of Hebrews put down for us in Hebrews 2.3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If God's given this, how will we escape if we neglect salvation? Now, if you're a believer, a follower in Christ, you'd have to say, why in the world did God give us this information? Why does he want us to know this? I think there's a couple of very specific reasons. For one, I won't patronize you and say, I'm not really sure it's going to be as bad as that. You know what? I think it's going to be far worse than what we can comprehend. 
So I won't patronize you with a soft sell. It should scare the bejeebers out of us to the degree that we're willing to share our faith with individuals who are going to face a godless eternity, to the degree that we become bold in our faith. This would be a good point for saying amen, okay? That's what should motivate us. I believe that's why God gave us this information, to motivate us to share what we know to be true. It's a reality check for us. All that God has spoken will come to pass. Now here's the question that we went to in the beginning. If every single detail to the nth detail of the prophecies of Jesus' first arrival on earth were fulfilled, why should his second coming be any different? Same book. Prophecies play it right out for us. We're watching it unfold before our eyes. It should create within us a sense of urgency. So that's my prayer for you this morning, that God will help us really grasp that sense of urgency to be willing to be bold on behalf of the kingdom. Would you pray with me?